0: Hi, welcome back to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today's podcast is centered around Reconstruction after the Civil War, as well as the happenings during the presidency of Andrew Johnson. Reconstruction was a challenging time in the country, and with the assassination of Lincoln, Andrew Johnson was thrust into a job he may not have been quite ready for. We cover quite a bit here, ranging from the new process for states to rejoin the Union, challenges facing the newly freedmen, including Jim Crow laws, tenant farming, the formation of the KKK, and the beginnings of civil rights movements in order to help them. And let's not forget the acquisition of Alaska from Russia for $7.2 million. Today's podcast was brought to you in part by the team at Keen Insights Internet Services. That's K-E-E-N-I-N-S-I-T-E-S. They spell it that way on purpose. They're punny like that. If you know any business owners looking to compete online with advertising or need a new website, contact our friends at keeninsights.com and be sure to mention U.S. History Repeated. Now, as always, we have our resident history expert, Gene Anzanakis. Gene, take it away.
1: The time period of Reconstruction is from 1865 until 1877. The majority of the South is in ruins. There is so much that needed to be done politically, socially, and economically. Imagine looking at a large glass vase that has fallen and shattered into hundreds and thousands of pieces. Where do you begin? How do you put this back together in a way that it functions You know, can you repair it in a way where you can't tell that it had been broken apart? If you think about all that had to be done, 12 years wasn't nearly enough time. Reconstruction ends not because the work they had set out to complete was finished. Reconstruction ends in 1877 because it was politically necessary for it to end in order for the Republican Party to maintain control over the executive branch. When the Civil War ended in 1865, Lincoln had already made his plan known for how former Confederate states would be readmitted to the Union. His plan was a lenient one, a plan that sought to bring the states back into the Union as quickly as possible, Lincoln's plan is sometimes referred to as the 10% plan. Amnesty would be given to those willing to take an oath of loyalty to the United States. High-ranking Confederate officials were excluded from this. You had to promise to support the U.S. Constitution and states had to ratify the 13th Amendment. Once 10% of the population in each state that had voted in the 1860 election took the loyalty oath that state could organize a new government. So that was Lincoln's plan. Lincoln also supported voting rights, but for some freedmen, if they were educated and if they owned property. The radical Republicans in the legislative branch wanted all black men given the right to vote. So Another thing that's important to discuss is that a bill was proposed in the legislative branch. It was called the Wade Davis Bill. And this proposed that 50% of white males had to take an amnesty oath before new state constitutions could be written and equal protection under the law for freed blacks. Lincoln vetoed this bill. Prior to the end of the Civil War, when Lincoln was re-elected, Republicans chose Andrew Johnson, a Southern Democratic senator from Tennessee that had remained in the Union. It was a symbolic gesture, showing the South that the North would work with them. Andrew Johnson was never meant to be President of the United States, but fate had different plans. When Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth and died the next day on April 15th, 1865, just days after General Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, a Southern Democrat was now in charge of Reconstruction. The stage was set for a power struggle between the new president and the radical Republicans. Johnson was seen as being too lenient on the South by Republicans, and he was seen as a traitor to the South by Democrats. Johnson could not win. When it comes to Reconstruction, there are certain terms that are essential to understanding this time period. The phrase antebellum, that means pre-Civil War. The term carpetbaggers, these were Northerners who moved to the South after the Civil War, hoping to profit from the social, economic, and political conditions of the South. This could have been former humans former Union soldiers, you know, businessmen looking to make a profit, reformers hoping to improve the conditions of freedmen. Scalawags, just that word itself sounds terrible. It was a term used to describe a useless, an old, useless horse. Scalwags were Southern Republicans. In the eyes of Southerners, they were traitors because they supported reconstruction policies instead of actively opposing them. And then we have the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. These are often referred to as the Civil War Amendments, and we will talk more about each of them throughout this podcast and the next podcast. Andrew Johnson, like Lincoln, was born in a log cabin. His family was originally from North Carolina, but they moved to Tennessee. His family was poor, and I mean dirt poor. His father died when he was 3, and when he got older, his mother hired him out as an apprentice, and, but you know, really more of like an indentured servant. Johnson despised working as an apprentice so much so that he ran away, which posed a problem because he was legally bound to stay. There was actually a reward for his return. The family moved to Tennessee and he opened a tailor shop and he built himself a pretty lucrative business. His shop still stands and it's a museum today in Greenville, Tennessee. He never attended school. He taught himself how to read and how to write, and at the age of 18, he married the daughter of a local businessman. Andrew and Eliza Johnson had a happy marriage. They had five children, and she really helped him to further his education. He read constantly, and he often would participate in debates in his tailor shop with his customers. Born poor, he had worked And saved up enough money to buy himself a home and even a handful of slaves. He did not own a plantation. Instead, the enslaved members of his household, they worked as domestic servants in his home. Now, as a slave owner, in a lot of the primary sources that I've read, records indicate that he was somewhat as known as a father figure to them. Now, that's certainly a description that doesn't tell the whole story. If people are being enslaved and kept against their will, it's not a relationship of a loving father and, you know, devoted children. It is still a relationship of someone who owns another human being. A man, you know, who despised the wealthy aristocracy of the South had kept up with the Joneses, as we would say. You know, he referred to the Southern white aristocracy as a slave yet he himself is a slave owner. He got involved in local politics and he held a number of different positions. His support base was built around gaining support from poor Southern whites, non-slave holding whites. They had needs for basics, schools, jobs, for example. In the South, the majority of labor was done by slaves. So there is this layer of racism there that even though they were poor, they were white and they felt as if their whiteness held them in a higher status that Southern blacks and the enslaved population were held in. He was a mayor, um... He was a member of the Tennessee legislature, a member of the House of Representatives. He actually served at the same time as Abraham Lincoln. He was the governor of Tennessee, and he served in the United States Senate. When he remained with the Union after his state seceded, his property was confiscated and his wife and his children were forced to flee. He was appointed military general of Tennessee by President Lincoln before he was made vice president. When he was sworn in as vice president, he was drunk. He gave this rambling speech. He couldn't remember people's names. He had to be pulled down into a chair to get him to stop speaking. You know, not a very good start. He was so drunk that he was unable to do his job and he had to be sent home. At this point in time, you know, the job of vice president was still one that had very little meaning. He was never meant to be president. Imagine the reaction of Republicans when Lincoln was assassinated and Johnson became president. Johnson was a southerner with southern views. He was a former slave owner only freeing his slaves months after the Emancipation Proclamation was issued while he was the military governor of Tennessee. This once indentured servant was now president of the United States. Johnson took the oath of office in the parlor of the hotel where he had been staying. There would be no grandiose inauguration or an address to a large crowd in fact, he wouldn't move into the White House for a number of weeks. Mary Lincoln, believe me, took her time moving out of the White House. He worked in an office provided for him by the Treasury Department before moving into the White House. Congress was not in session when Johnson became president. Johnson was a believer of, in states' rights and a strict constructionist when it came to the Constitution. His plan for Reconstruction was similar to Lincoln's. He took advantage of Congress's absence and quickly got moving, much to the dismay of Republicans who simply assumed he would do their bidding. They were wrong. Johnson's plan for Reconstruction was similar to Lincoln's. He had them take a loyalty oath, Um, state constitutions had to abolish slavery, had to approve the 13th Amendment, and they had to declare secession illegal. Johnson mandated that high-ranking Confederate officials and wealthy white Southerners who owned property that was worth more than $20,000 had to personally request amnesty from him. Now, if you know anything about Andrew Johnson, he despised the wealthy white class. He blamed them for the war. They looked down on Johnson as a commoner and as a traitor to the South. Yet, if they wanted amnesty, they had to grovel to him for it. He pardoned about 90% of the people who requested it. Based on Johnson's plan, the majority of Southern states had fulfilled their requirements by the end of 1865, but Congress refused to recognize their representatives. The legislative branch was intent on controlling Reconstruction. Imagine, if you will, a tug of war between President Johnson and the Republican members of Congress. For many white Southerners, they looked at what was happening to their country, their land, their sons, their former wealth. It would take an entire generation to help build back the economy of the South They looked at what had happened to their property that in their minds was stolen from them through emancipation, and they blamed the North. Forgiveness was not something they were seeking, nor were they ready to forgive the North. In the pre-Civil War South, or what we call the antebellum South, one's whiteness was a sign of superiority. I mentioned in our Civil War podcasts that the majority of Confederate soldiers didn't own slaves. So, why were they fighting? It's a very complex answer. If you look at the lost cause narrative, the southern argument that the Civil War was justified so as to save the southern way of life, you know, states' rights understand it was the state's rights to preserve slavery. The depictions of slavery in the South were always positive. The enslaved people of the South were happy. They were incapable of anything more. If you look at what was being preached throughout Southern churches about secession and the need to preserve slavery ideas of racial equality and how it would threaten southern society were being used to scare people and to gain further support for the cause. You know, you, you had discussions of interracial marriage, for example, which really fired people up. When the Civil War ended and now there are four million newly freed people, there are talks of citizenship and voting rights You are seeing black men being elected to political office. The drive to protect white superiority went into high gear. So while most Confederate soldiers didn't own slaves, they were fighting to protect the South that they knew and loved. They were fighting to maintain the status quo. In their minds, for even the poorest of the white Southerners, their whiteness held them above blacks, and they wanted to maintain that social hierarchy. So, what do we see happening in the post Civil War South? We see the creation and the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, we see the passage of black codes that sought to limit the rights and protections of newly freed citizens we see slavery replaced with the systems of sharecropping and tenant farming which basically was slavery by the by another name we see the age of jim crow in 1865 the ku klux klan was founded in tennessee And by 1870, chapters existed in almost every southern state. Former Confederate General Nathan Bedford Forrest was made the first Grand Wizard of the KKK. The KKK used violence to intimidate newly freedmen from exercising their rights. Klansmen destroyed property, beat, and killed people. Their goal was to restore white supremacy in the South. The federal government attempted to limit them by passing enforcement acts in the 1870s. These acts would be repealed in the 1890s and the KKK would go on to gain momentum in the early 1900s and target additional groups of people and still exists today. Black codes were passed in many Southern states, The purpose of these laws were to restrict the rights and opportunities of freedmen. Some examples of these laws, just to give you an idea, you know, they could not quit their job. If they did, they had to work for free for a year. What do you call that? No intermarriage with whites. You could not serve on juries. There were segregated public facilities. The Black Codes passed in Mississippi were especially restrictive and harsh. The Radical Republicans were members of both the Senate and the House of Representatives, and they shared similar goals for Reconstruction. Radical Republicans supported immediate emancipation, which they disagreed with Lincoln on throughout the Civil War. Citizenship and equal protection of the law for newly freed black men and women, and lastly, voting rights for black males. Radical Republicans wanted the South punished. They wanted freed blacks to have more rights, especially for black men to have the right to vote. They saw this extension of voting rights as a way to maintain their control over the federal government. Some famous Radical Republicans were Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner. While most Republicans in Congress were moderate, President Andrew Johnson's vetoes of key pieces of legislation led to moderates joining in with Radical Republicans in order to override his vetoes. They ultimately impeach the president and seize control over Reconstruction. Johnson issued 21 vetoes, more than any other president before him. So the battle of who was going to control reconstruction policies was a contentious one. Congress overrode many of his vetoes, especially when the radical Republicans gained a majority in the legislative branch. Another thing that's important to discuss is the Freedmen's Bureau. That was created in 1865 to help both newly freed slaves and poor whites of the South. It provided these groups with food, housing, medical care, legal aid, and education. You have four million former slaves that need to be reintegrated into society. You have four million people who have no education or very limited education, no place to live. If they were married, most marriages were not legal. You may need to find relatives who had been sold into the Deep South. The Bureau tried to help secure jobs, even to redistribute land that had been confiscated from former Confederates. The Bureau was first created before the Civil War's end. In 1866, Congress sought to extend the Freedmen's Bureau. Johnson vetoed the bill, but after reworking the bill and a second veto by Johnson, Congress overrode his veto and passed the bill, extending the Bureau for two more years. Johnson vetoed the bill, saying it was a large expense that only helped a certain group of people and that it gave the federal government control over things that states should have the right to control. Now, there was some debate over this agency. You know, if they are free, let them be free and not depend on the federal government. On the flip side, you have to look at the opposing argument. Here is a population of 4 million people who have been denied basic human rights. They have no education, no property or place to live, no money. They needed and deserved help. The agency was run by former Union General Oliver Otis Howard, who went on to help found Howard University, one of the most famous historically black colleges, and also served as that college's president. The Freedmen's Bureau lacked the necessary funding to complete the work it sought to do throughout not only the South, but also in the border states. One of the most important pieces of legislation was the Civil Rights Act of 1866. This law was revolutionary for a number of different reasons. It was the first time the federal government dealt with the issue of civil rights. It took two attempts to pass this law. Johnson disliked it so much, he vetoed it twice. Once the first time you know, the bill was put forth in 1865 and once when it was reworked and put up for a vote in 1866, when it was ultimately passed. And this is a direct quote from that bill. All persons born in the United States, with the exception of American Indians, were hereby declared to be citizens of the United States. The law goes on to say that all citizens have the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of persons and property. So this law defined what citizenship meant and that all people, regardless of race, should have equal protection under the law. And the sitting president vetoed that bill twice. So you have the Reconstruction Act then of 1867. This ushered in the age of radical Reconstruction. And so these are some of the components of that bill. The majority of voters had to take a loyalty oath. Each state government had to outlaw slavery. Former Confederate officials were banned from voting for state governments. Southern states, with the exception of Tennessee, Tennessee had already ratified the 14th Amendment and met most of the requirements. They were divided into five military districts until they complied with the demands and could re-enter the Union. Each military district was controlled by a general, and that general had the power to remove any state official and to overrule any state law. Military troops ensured laws were enforced and provided much needed protection for f- for freedmen. Virginia had its own district and was readmitted in eighteen seventy. North and South Carolina made up district number two and they were readmitted into the Union in eighteen sixty eight. In military district number three, you have Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. Alabama and Florida were readmitted in 1868, but Georgia did not re-enter until 1870. In fact, it was the last state to re-enter the Union. In military district number four, you have Arkansas and Mississippi, and the fifth military district consisted of Louisiana and Texas. The next component was that states had to ratify the 14th Amendment, What people know most about the 14th Amendment was that it granted citizenship to all persons who had been born in the United States or who had naturalized. It also did a number of other things. Section 2 of the 14th Amendment dealt with how the population of each state would be counted to determine representatives in the House of Representatives. No longer would the three-fifths compromise be used. Section four of that amendment stipulated that the federal government would never pay war debts owed by the Confederacy. So if you were foolish enough to support the Confederate cause, you're going to be out of that money forever. Black males had to be given the right to vote. Now that the whole number of a state's population was going to be counted towards representation, black males needed to be able to vote, One, to prevent former Confederate officials from gaining power. Two, to be able to elect people who will protect their rights. And three, to ensure continued support for the Republican Party. And you have to understand that that was really the greatest push by the Republicans to give black males the right to vote. The 15th Amendment will eventually be added to the Constitution, which we'll talk more about in the next podcast. The Republicans were victorious in that the majority of elected positions were filled with Republicans, and a number of African-American males were elected to Congress. You saw 15 African-Americans elected to the House of Representatives and two state senators. The first African-American senator was a man by the name of Hiram Revels. He was born free, and he worked to recruit black regiments during the Civil War, He was selected by the state legislature to represent the state of Mississippi. He held the same position that former Confederate President Jefferson Davis once held. In 1874, Mississippi would have its second African-American senator and the first one to serve a full term in office. With the abrupt end to Reconstruction in 1877, there would not be another black senator elected to Congress until 1967. So let that number sink in, right? 1874, the first, well, the second African-American senator, but the first African-American senator to serve a full term. And you will not have another African-American senator elected to Congress until 1967. The Tenure of Office Act was passed in 1868, this law prohibited the president from firing any presidential appointee that had to be confirmed by the senate without first getting approval for their removal typically these positions serve at the pleasure of the president if the president wanted a member of their cabinet gone all they need to do is ask for their resignation This law passed to protect Republican appointees, especially Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, a Republican, and as Secretary of War, he was in charge of carrying out Reconstruction policies. Johnson hated him and wanted him gone. Lincoln didn't like him all that much either, but Johnson hated him. Johnson also felt that the law was unconstitutional. This law sets the stage for Andrew Johnson's impeachment, the first of any president. And it would not happen again until President Bill Clinton and more recently with President Trump. After the Tenure of Office Act was passed, President Andrew Johnson asked Secretary of War Stanton to resign. He refused Johnson then suspended him and appointed General Ulysses S. Grant as an interim acting Secretary of War. President Johnson then submitted proof to the Senate as to why Secretary Stanton had been suspended. The Senate declared that Stanton had to remain in office. By February of 1868, now Johnson had had enough. He full-on fired Stanton. Stanton. St- still doesn't leave. He actually goes as far as locking himself in his office for weeks and refuses to leave. A few days later, the House of Representatives voted to impeach Andrew Johnson. Now, we did an entire podcast on how the president is elected and how the president can be removed from office if need be. So you can go back to that podcast and learn all the ins and outs of that. So, But we're just going to do a basic overview here. So the process begins in the House of Representatives, and the Senate then holds a trial. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court acts as the judge and the members of the Senate as the jury. Two-thirds of the Senate must vote yes in order for the president to be removed from office. If you go to senate.gov, you can see all 11 articles of impeachment that Johnson was charged with. Johnson did not appear at the Senate trial. He also did not have a vice president. And as such, had he been removed from office, the president pro temper of the Senate would have become president had he not been acquitted. Johnson received 35 guilty votes and 19 not guilty votes. He was one vote shy of being removed from office. Only after Johnson was acquitted did Secretary of War Edwin Stanton leave his post. The act was repealed in 1887 and it was deemed unconstitutional in 1926 in a Supreme Court case. It also set an important standard that the president should not be removed from office because, you know, members of the legislative branch disagree with their policy Members of the legislative branch wanted the vote for Johnson to be close, but didn't feel that Johnson should be removed from office. So, Johnson remains in office and he finishes the last few months of his term. While he was constantly at odds with the legislative branch during his time as president, and Reconstruction dominated his presidency, it's important to note a major foreign policy achievement that occurred during his presidency. In 1867, the United States purchased Alaska from Russia for $7.2 million. Secretary of State William H. Seward helped to broker the deal. The amount accounted to two and a half cents an acre. The purchase was important as it rid the continent of a major foreign power. The Russians never built permanent settlements there and did very little with the land, as did the United States for many years after the purchase. Some critics refer to the purchase as Seward's Folly or Seward's Icebox. When gold was found in Alaska in the late 1890s, that of course changed. The purchase of Alaska was essential in increasing the United States' ability to trade in the Pacific, and of course, it is rich in natural resources. Alaska would go on to become a state in 1959. In the election of 1868, Johnson was not nominated by any party. The Republicans nominated General Ulysses S. Grant, who would go on to win, and Reconstruction policies continued during his presidency. If you were to ask many historians to rank the presidents from best to worst, you would find that Andrew Johnson would be at the bottom or in the bottom three. Legacy wise, you have a white Southerner who sided with the Union during the Civil War, was made vice president as a symbolic gesture. That symbolic gesture became an accidental president due to assassination. He is a rags-to-riches story if there ever was one. A once indentured servant had become president of the United States. Politically, his impeachment weakened the office of the president for decades. He was a former slave owner and in in a number of public speeches made blatantly racist comments, even in addresses to Congress as president. His vetoes of essential bills that would have aided millions of newly freed men and women in the South are evidence enough to his views on equality. He was combative and he was unwilling to entertain ideas that were different from his own. Abraham Lincoln was a tough act to follow. It would have been for anyone. The task of reconstruction would have been overwhelming for any president. Most historians would argue that Andrew Johnson was especially unequal to the task. After his presidency ended and he returned to his home in Greenville, Tennessee, he was elected Senator in 1875 and is the only former president to serve in the Senate. His victory was short-lived. He only served a few months into his term when he died. As per his request, Andrew Johnson was buried with an American flag and a copy of the United States Constitution. Today, in Greenville, Tennessee, there is a museum dedicated to the 17th president. You can see his tailor shop, his home, and visit his gravesite. Andrew Johnson was buried on his own property at the top of a hill, also per his request. It was will to the federal government after his last order died and is now a national cemetery.
0: Well, Andrew Johnson, not a very popular guy. And now we're going to be moving into, I guess, Ulysses S. Grant and, and his crack at Reconstruction. Come and listen to see what happens next. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.